and welcome to episode 193 of the Waters Waveland podcast. I'm your host, Wei Shen, and with me here today is my co-host, the one and only Tony Malikian. Hey, Tony, how's it hanging? It's going well. It's going well, Wei Shen. The, the viewers have to know we've just been laughing for literally about an hour straight, but um, <laughs> yeah, so uh, 193, almost up to 200. What are we going to have to do? What, what, what do you think would be a good idea for episode 200? I think, and we've actually been talking about this for a while now. <laughs> <laughs> Just so all this is no. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, with the, the, the cause of the laughter. Um, so we've been talking about this for a while now. Uh, I think for episode 200, it would actually be really, really great to get on the original creator of uh, the Waters Waveland podcast, along with our your previous co-host, um, so Dan mm-hmm. Francesco and yep. James Rundle, um, who unfortunately not are not, <laughs> that's not John, unfortunately are not with Waters Technology anymore. But um, yeah, I thought that would be really fun. That'll be that'll be my project over the next couple of weeks because I think our listeners, you know, many of you have been here since 2016 listening to us drone on like this. But uh, James uh, is now at the Wall Street Journal. Dan is at Business Insider. So we, we will work with their uh, with their communications teams because, you know, they're big time now. So I, I'll probably have to go through an intermediary, a secretary or something to set it up. But that'd be some fun. And if we all kind of put a little if anybody is a regular listener and is still in contact with James or Dan, let them know we've been talking about him. Let them know that we're going to try and get them on the podcast for episode 200. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'll be that would be super cool. I don't know. I mean, that I would I would be guessing that the episode would be also really long because we just we'd just be having so much fun talking. Just too <laughs> much fun, you know. Too much fun in quarantine, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of which, Wei Shen, Wei Shen, we've been putting up a lot of stories on Waters Technology. Good one this past week. I think me and you, we were both there because we were the two that uh, edited the piece, but. Uh, Reb's uh, COBOL piece. What did you think about that one? The COBOL piece. Um, long live COBOL. I love, love, love that lead so much. I mean, it was just a, it's a such a, it's such a simple quote, but it's, it's, it speaks so, I think, strongly, you know? Yeah. Long just, live COBOL. Yeah. Is <laughs> uh, Wayne Linksman, who's, uh, he's kind of, um, he's just been working in COBOL and he says, it ke- it's, it keep long live COBOL. It keeps me employed at 65 years old. And <laughs> simply because he's one of the last people on around that still have a deep, deep knowledge of the COBOL programming language. So I don't know. It, it's something that obviously we've talked about, written a lot about, about here at Waters Technology for many years, but for you, what, what was uh, the most interesting takeaway? Well, I, th- I thought it was interesting because a lot of uh, programmers that are familiar with the um, yeah COBOL language are um, slowly uh, leaving the industry. So either they are retiring or you know they're just not around anymore. Um, but this is this is the interesting point. There are currently two hundred and forty billion lines of code still in mm-hmm. operation, and each year. 5 billion more are added. You know, this is billion. according to, yeah, 5 billion more are added every year of lines of code. This is lines of code. It's according that, to IBM. Yeah, that's according to IBM. And this is also interesting. 
So according to a two, uh, sorry, according to a 2017 graphic by Reuters, 43% uh, of banking systems are built on this language, mm -hmm. built on the COBOL language. So, you know, with uh, it, as as it underpins like the majority, oh, not majority, sorry, but almost majority of banking systems. I'm just wondering, you know, with uh, with with the, with experts in the industry slowly leaving or slowly, I guess, aging out of um, the working force. Retiring, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yep. What does this mean? You know, and and with new languages coming up, like you know the Julia language, and with uh, Python getting more popular, you know, what what do you what does this mean for for COBOL? Do you think that this will eventually um, be replaced, or can it be just can we scrap it all and rewrite everything, or would it be just new code that are added onto it? Or does it also mean that COBOL actually needs to be thought more, um, I guess, properly in, in university? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I, I definitely don't think the latter, but it is funny. I think if there were podcasts in like the early 90s after like the SNL crash and everything like that, there would have been discussion about, you know, these bank systems built on COBOL, you know, just they're too legacy. Then after 9-11, then after her, um, after um, the financial crisis. Yes, I remember. It's when I first started working. Because <laughs> um, I remember 10 years ago, I, I, so when I joined um, Waters over 10 years ago, people were talking about COBOL sys uh, programming language systems being built on COBOL and how it's a real headache. Still not solved. This is a problem that still exists. And fair enough. When we're talking about COBOL and banking systems, we're not talking about your cutting edge, for the most part, um, OMS, EMS trading systems. We're not talking about certainly um, your big data, your analytic systems, stuff like that, risk systems. Hopefully, hopefully we're not talking about that. <laughs> um, but it is key to always know, especially at sell-side institutions um, and the biggest, biggest banks, this programming language is still quite prevalent. Um, and as banks want all their systems to be connected to, you know, break down these silos that exist across the organization, what is happening on the retail legacy banking platform side does have an effect on other, um, other sectors, i.e. capital markets. And there's only a certain amount of spend that can go around a bank. You can't just, it's not an infinite amount of dollars that exist. So you do have to pick and choose which projects you're going to divert attention to. And so I think that that for me is the most interesting thing about this is capital markets firms um, might not care as much about the idea that COBOL exists, but this is still a prevalent problem that exists. And that has to be solved for because, again, there's only so much attention that you can take. But if you want everything connected and you want to start having you want to be able to start sharing data more easily and start understanding the full risks that exist across an organization, we have to improve this architecture. Now, do I think that we're going to start teaching COBOL again or something like that? No, slowly but surely there will be fewer and fewer people that will be experts in this. And eventually it will just be forced through and, but it's going to be a problem that will persist for at least the next, the next decade that happens 10 years from now, or the next, uh, the next big problem that comes 10 years from now, this will still be an issue.
Right, right. I mean, I I wasn't working during the financial crisis. I just maybe had just come out of school. But um, mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. I'm just curious in terms of like what you've heard since then, you know, um, where uh, where during the financial crisis, you really heard that, yeah, COBOL is a problem. We need to like do something about it. What in, in your experience uh, working all these years? <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm going to call uh, HR on you. <laughs> What have you seen change from the conversation you had back then to, you know, to now? COBOL still exists, and what has changed? Uh, frankly, not a lot, to be honest with you. It still exists. It's still a problem, and everybody says it. And it's this idea of technical debt and just stuff that you, know, you just – it just builds up over time, you know? I mean, God, we've had uh, Bill Murphy on the podcast. He's the CTO over at Blackstone. How many times has he been on talking about the buildup of technical debt? It's still an issue. It's going to continue to be an issue. And COBOL is just one of those old school, old time problems. But hopefully, you know, as we try and look at long tail trends, what are some of the the longer ripple effects that are going to be created in the technology world as a result of the coronavirus? Hopefully, this does help people to realize that you need... Uh, easier sharing of information, more real-time data. You need more automation in an organization to be able to handle these disruptions. Whether it's a massive virus that disrupts us, um, a human-born uh, virus, or it's a massive, you know, a, a virus created through computers that just destroys a system. We have to figure out new ways and make sure that we are relying less on legacy architecture, programming language, things like that, and moving towards more trusted, good, reliable um, technology. You just won't want best of breed because it's the best of breed at that moment. It needs to be long lasting. But that's kind of the push that has to be made, I think, that firms are starting to realize as a result of the coronavirus. Mm, right. But there's also the problem of rewriting a uh, code, right? Um, you know, and and uh, Viral Shah, the co-founder and CEO of Julia Computing, he says that, you know, to an extent, you can keep an old system going. It, it's always worthwhile doing that. But because rewriting a software is extensive, it's time consuming, and, and it introduces the potentially new bugs. So... But when the system does stop doing its job, job, sorry, then yeah, it is time to kick it. But I guess um, COBOL is still in some ways doing what it needs to do. It's just that it is legacy and it will soon run out of time, I guess. Well, you know, listen, I think that leads well into, so we have a guest on this week, uh, John Walsh at Refinitive. And so I got to speak with him and we, we discussed alternative data. Okay, and alternative data becoming so much more important in the world of risk analysis, um, uh, being able to try trying to find alpha um, in in an area where um, passive investing is growing greater and greater. Alternative data is being used for everything. There's alternative data is such a complex, wide ranging topic, and so we had a good discussion around that. But it's it's just when you talk about the need, a big piece that we talked about was the need for standardization in the alternative uh, data world. All right. 
right now, you know, there's a challenge around bringing standards to the alter to alternative data when, um, as John was saying, revenue payoffs are still so unknown for so many different providers. Um, he was saying that we're at this point where the market hasn't fully moved from early adopter to mainstream yet, though everybody says, yeah, yeah, we're working with alternative data, but do you actually have a good strategy yet? Mm. You know, are you kind of just still not lost in that? It's kind of like everybody's like, yeah, I use cloud, but how is that cloud migration um, strategy going for you as a whole, as, a, as an entire entity? Um, so standards can help to mainstream and with that mainstreaming reduce costs um, and to provide more value to a wider swath of users. But so that was a big discussion that we had. And I think that, you know, it's just kind of one of those things. We're now talking about alternative data for big data analytics, crunching, you know, for risks to be able to find what these risks are, to be able to use alternative data sets to to figure out what the next, you know, pandemic will be ahead of time. So that that firm's better ready for it, whatever it is, um, to be able to find um pockets of all right, no one else knows that this industry is being most affected or will benefit most from it. You need to have up-to-date uh, systems, languages, architecture, infrastructure in order to be able to fully capitalize on that. Right. Otherwise, you're always playing a game of catch-up. And you know, it's something that John and I certainly talked about um, during, the thing, during our uh, conversation. <clears throat> yeah, that's really interesting. I think one thing, and I had a chance to listen to it as well. I mean, one other thing that uh, you talked about was uh, M&A and consolidation within the alternative data space, which is mm -hmm. also something that you have written up recently. Um, yeah, I, I thought that was an interesting point. And uh, you, what are your thoughts about that? I mean, do you think that, uh, yeah, John John actually agrees with that? Yeah, because we, we wrote an article and we talked about it a little bit previously that, you know, for alternative data providers, this is a rough market. As mm. VC private equity funding dries up, as banks aren't going to be willing to throw stuff as easily at experimental projects, and as you know, hedge funds to buy side, which you know, for many of these alternative provider, <clears throat> alternative data providers is just so necessary. They're not going to be willing to experiment when one out of ten, perhaps one out of a hundred, you know, data sets that they onboard are actually worthwhile. John was saying, he's like, so I take a more negative view. I think it's going to be a very, very rough, rough seas for uh, for alternative data providers. But what he was saying is, especially for the niche, we're not talking about the, the largest ones. But what he was saying was, it is a little bit of it's the best of times, worst of times scenario here. Yes, for many, they're going to really, really struggle and you know, fact matters, there are going to be many that are going to go under that, that aren't going to exist or that there's going to be an M&A, you know, they're going to be like, we can't go on independently. We're going to have to merge with a competitor or get bought by one of the bigger uh, firms out there. But this is also a proving ground. Um, and this is, you know, we've tried to talk positively, uh, me and you, Aishan, about um, just this is a tough environment for everyone, no matter what industry, no matter what business you have. And quite frankly, we have it much easier than most 99.9% .9 of the people on the earth. So in our world, the capital markets, alternative data providers, you keep on talking about you got value. Well, now's your time to prove it. So we'll see. <laughs>
Yeah. Okay. Then I, I guess without giving too much away, let's just kick Fair it over enough. to your conversation uh, with John. So um, till next week, guys. See ya. See you next week. All right, and now I'm joined by John Walsh, uh, Director of Strategy and Innovation at Refanative. John, thanks so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Tony. So, you know, we're going to have a conversation looking at the alternative data space and, you know, just some of the issues that are cropping our head right now um, in light of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak, as well as just more broadly speaking, just around trends that have been developing in the alt data space as a whole. Um, John, no, I, I think maybe the, the best way to start is first, why don't you tell a little bit uh, about yourself, what it is that you do at Refanative and kind of how you fit in. Uh, you guys released a white paper recently that we'll link to um, a new dimension of data, but talk a little bit about what your role is there at Refanative. Yeah, so um, I work in the Refinitive Labs. So our Refinitive Labs is basically the innovation side of our business. So we, we're a global team. We have labs in New York, London, Singapore, and we have data scientists, quant researchers, researchers, full stack developers, UX engineers, and strategy folks like myself. And so we work across the different business units and usually on kind of new projects along with like emerging themes in the industry, like the ones you can think of, like machine learning, NLP, cloud, and of course, for this conversation, alternative data. So for me, I've been involved in alternative data for about eight years, I think. It's um, kind of before it was called alternative data, mm -hmm. um, starting in like the partnerships team, looking at all these new data sets that were coming out from all these third parties. And then it kind of morphed from that to content strategy, now into innovation. And so we've been involved in helping um, the overall business units, you know, with the strategy and implementation of how we work with alternative data, both uh, externally and in-house. In okay. And, you know, so you talk about like you've been doing this for eight years in alternative data and, you know, alternative data has become this catchy buzzword um, that it's kind of a catch-all for a massive, massive amount of data for our purposes, usually kind of anything outside of your traditional market data and reference data. But so when you're talking about alternative data, broadly speaking, just what is your definition of what <laughs> alternative data is for the capital markets? <laughs> right. Okay. Good question. So I, I've said this before, but I, I kind of define it like very differently depending on the audience. So sometimes internally within Refinitiv, I might define alternative data as just kind of the data that we don't have today as commercially available. Mm -hmm. So even, so that kind of is a broader term of there's data we have in house that we could potentially develop and bring to market. And, and that's a lot of our effort is kind of um, uh, our, you know, a lot of our alternative data strategies. We have a ton of data in house and how do we bring that to market? And, and that could come in a lot of different forms. I think traditionally the way people think of it is like this explosion of data over the last few years um, you know, between businesses and consumers, they're generating um, a ton of data that had never been here before, and that can alternatively be applied into the financial services space. And it is typically had little to no cleansing, correction, enhancements, mm -hmm. you know, mapping. And so it's very 
um, very new frontier data sets that can be used, potentially be used by uh, financial services customers in a new way to get new insights. And so that's different than I originally said it in the sense that these are usually third party, very new, inexperienced to financial services, and there's now a lot of them, and it's caused this kind of excitement within the industry, but also a lot of challenges as well. Sure, sure. And, you know, we'll definitely get into to some of those positives and challenges of it. You know, maybe just kind of start off with, though, as kind of a use case. Right now, there's a lot of talk about using alternative data for firms, uh, trading firms to um, manage how they're monitoring and how they're building their portfolios around uh, the coronavirus, the COVID-19 outbreak that we're seeing right now. Um, being that firms are using alternative data sets, these new kind of data sets to derive new insights, as you were saying, from what you've seen, how how are users, how are firms trying to tackle this outbreak, this pandemic, by using um, these unique kind of data sets specific to the coronavirus? Yeah, so the coronavirus epidemic has certainly raised the interest level in alternative data, not even just from like where it's been traditionally, but even more broadly. So it's it's really kind of opened up a lot of opportunity for these alternative data providers to target a kind of a new audience. Mm-hmm. And so for, I mean, you know, we're not we're no exception at Refinitiv, but every, you know, you know, a lot of alternative data providers and and some of the larger financial tech data companies and sell side are kind of all coming up with their own. COVID-19 tracker and highlighting some different data sets. And it's been great. Like there's people are highlighting a lot of interesting new data sets and how um, they can kind of shed light on what's going on. Um, I guess I think about it, you know, some of the things I guess we think of is the data sets in alternative data that we found really interesting before COVID-19 are continuing to be interesting to us. So you have like the major categories of ESG and consumer spending, geolocation, and I would add job postings. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we saw value in those beforehand and you know, we continue to see them and they're some of the more well-known alternative data sets. And two, I think there's ones that, you know, maybe historically we've kind of considered maybe not a good fit for us or just so niche or so such a small coverage. Um, this has kind of reinvigorated some of these providers in the sense of like, it. it they're able to show something that's that's so targeted, mm-hmm. um, and and show something about what's going on in the uh, crisis that's that is interesting and kind of allows you to kind of take a, a fresh look at them again. Um, I guess three. I guess it's kind of reinforced. Uh, you know, we this kind of belief with alternative data that it's like the one thing we've learned is like it's never one data set. It's it's not. There's not one end all be all data set that's going to sh- you know, show you everything. So a lot of these alternative data sets provide a piece of the story. And I think kind of interesting with this, with the COVID-19 experience has been not only just getting that whole picture, but also like the timing of it. So you could see like in the initial outbreak, you know, you had these data sets that were really focused on China and manufacturing in China and, and other sentiment around it that really was kind of a first leading indicator of what was going on and showing interesting insights. And then as we, you know, social distancing started becoming a, a global phenomenon, you, you could start to see data sets tracking that footfall traffic and 
and who was kind of adhering to social distancing, you know, across cities and across regions. And that was that was kind of developing interesting insights. And then today you can look at data sets with tracking online purchasing behavior or app and in, in, internet usage. And you can um, and you can kind of see the usage there. And then I think as the recovery starts to happen, you have um, job, you know, job listing data, employment data, and and maybe even consumer spending of how that's tracking and, and other manufacturing activity. So it's all like it's it's kind of all showing uh, this the story in a complete way, but all at like kind of different points. It's I kind of like compare it to almost like pixels on a television, and they're all like all these alternative data sets are like individual pixels, and they all are lighting up at different times, and it, you know together it shows like a shows that picture but you know on its own they're not they're they're of limited value but you know together it's really showing some really interesting insights and and a dynamic visual of what's what's unfolding sure sure and it, it would seem to me then you know, this is something that we just talk about we write a lot about and people we've had on this podcast but the key here is just it's not there isn't one piece of data there isn't the silver bullet you know data set that's just going to solve all your problems when tracking this it's it's more this kind of mixing and matching and blending of various data sets to be able to track this and i would imagine that one of the key things is trying to figure out early um which data sets are working well together and which ones just aren't working thus you need to kind of move on from how do you kind of manage that blending of of data sets to get um an accurate readout as to what's happening in the market right now. Yeah, I mean that's certainly the challenge. So it's, I, I mean, I guess in some ways we look at it in a similar way. You know, as Refinitiv, we're a, we are a data provider into financial services, and we we supply a lot of the core traditional financial content of you know, pricing, estimates, fundamentals, ownership, et cetera, et cetera. So some of the non-alternative data. And as we've looked at how we do alternative data, sometimes we kind of look at it through the same lens of, you know, how deep is the history, how how wide is the coverage, what's the frequency of the data, and a lot of the boxes that we check here on our kind of core financial data is, is very different in alternative data, and and so we don't, I guess we don't look at it exactly of like what's we want to look at this exact data set. Um, we kind of. I guess look at the ones which we think seem the most appealing. So we kind of keep a, uh, an open mind on what the data set is, and and I guess it's I guess I look at it like one of the challenges with alternative data is the you kind of have the revenue versus costs. So these these costs of these data sets can be very high, and for and. And so, and the amount of revenue you can make off of it is is like kind of like we said, it's marginal. It's not like an end all be all. So balancing that revenue you're going to make with the cost, I think, has been challenging both for the larger scale providers looking to partner with alternative data providers, and then the uh, the, the the ultimate buyer, the usually the buy side customer, the usually the alternative data buyer. So managing that revenue versus cost has been Kind of something how we think about it of you know we're looking at ways of like the explicit cost of how much the data set is going to cost is one thing 
then there's kind of the implicit cost of the data. And right now that implicit cost has been kind of uh, taken on by the alt the early adopters of alternative data, like the the, the top top data savvy hedge funds that um, people's names you could recognize. And they've kind of done that themselves, and now that's kind of a barrier to entry for them. They've they've done all this work and onboarded these data sets, and they're kind of extracting all the value. Um, now, as you look at as these alternative data buyers are trying to expand into the longer tail, this is this is where we um, we could come in and help and and help offset, like do some of the data enrichment, do some of the concordance, do some of the value add that could help lower the costs for the ultimate buyer. Um, but then there's that revenue question. And so the value you're getting is kind of an unfixed amount. And I think some of the frustrations with data buyers coming in, you know, they they maybe have not been using alternative data. They they're interested, they've heard the term, they want to, they're interested in it. So they might look at a data set. Um, but it's not just a, like it's it's not a simple test. You you now have other your competitors who are using the data who are either the most savvy data users who are um, who've done a lot of that enrichment work or it's maybe if for some of these niche alternative data sets that are very focused on maybe a few securities maybe that analyst is that's the one that hedge fund is buying heavy amount of security so you're, you're entering a very competitive field trying to extract value and it's not so much like you come in and then take your proportionate amount of that value um, it's very hard to think of a novel way to use the data set and some of the data sets might not support that. So I guess we look at it as like, is these data sets we're looking at, um, you know, can you do the obvious things of get value and blend in a way that's telling you something interesting, but also what's the, you know, as more and more start using this data set, is this, is this a data set that's going to be able to support a lot of people leveraging it and um, is that value still going to be enough to justify the costs even even if we lower the implied cost of it mm -hmm. um, we got to keep that we got to keep that balance so that's kind of how we think of it as like is this data set um, broad enough um, differentiated enough and and could apply to enough you know different strategies that we could you know, we feel like it's going to go from maybe a niche alternative data set to something that's um, used more broadly. Yeah. So I think that challenge is um, you know, kind of that open question of how many data sets in the alternative data space are truly like that, that's going to be able to support that um, broad use case and how many are just going to have to always stay kind of niche, niche alternative data sets. Makes sense. And, you know, one of the things that you touch on to kind of build off that, and so one of the things you touch on in the report is, you know, trying to figure out what the revenue kind of payoff is for incorporating these, but that there is this lack of standards that exists in the alternative data industry. It's something we've written about. There's a lot of movements underway, especially uh, in the buy side community. I think uh, FISB uh, has something underway. We're trying to build some standards around the alternative data space. What do you see as being the main roadblocks when it comes to when it comes to standards and where do you kind of think that there needs to be movement made in order to make these um, data sets more easily uh, comparable apples to apples, that they're easily more manageable from a cleansing kind of that perspective? Yeah, so I guess, like in my view, what I worry about is 
And some of the alternative data providers may have had like an initial sale. And, you know, as I mentioned, they're selling it to like the most sophisticated users who are willing to kind of just take it as is. They don't really want the alternative data provider messing it with the data that, you know, as limited as, as less as possible. And they're going to take it in and they're, there, there's only a few, there's very small number that can really do that. And so what the standards and what we're trying to accomplish with more standards, standardization across the industry is allowing that longer tail customers start accessing these data sets and do it in a way that makes sense. Um, and I think, you know, there's that initial of you're imposing a cost, you know, usually on somebody and it's typically the alternative data provider, you know, you've got to standardize this data set, you've got to you know, follow these guidelines and, and these data sets have to kind of you know, you know, follow these, follow this format, etc. And so that's a cost that's on the alternative data provider in some way. And, you know, they're going to obviously wonder is there, what's the revenue payoff for doing that? And, and that's where I feel like the, in, the market as a whole is kind of stagnated a little bit, I guess, is where it's reached, you know, that early adopter phase is people, is customers have come and, and there's proof points of people using alternative data and being successful with it, but then it, it's, it hasn't really made that jump into mainstream. And this is, you know, this would help that. This is what the point of doing this type of work is, but um, I think there's still some uncertainty on how, besides standardization, what else is the pro the right product mix to, or the product fit to sell into the longer tail. And I think there's probably apprehension on the data prov data provider to, to do like with limited resources, limited time, limited funding um, to devote to standardization. And, and when, when the payoff is still has not been fully proven out. Who would be in charge? Who would who would you see? Who would be the best fit? Is that is this a regulatory issue that needs to be kind of handed down around standardization, rather than data providers, or is it the actual the raw data providers that they need to kind of come together on standardization, or is it the the banks and asset managers that need to, or is it a blend of everything above? Yeah, I don't know. I think if um, you know, there is some work being coalescing around this and i think if there is pressure put on by the data buyers like you know we want these data if we want to buy this data from you you've got to comply with these standards mm -hmm. i think if that pressure was put on more than anything else i think that would be enough to kind of compel um and more uh, more rallying around this, the standards and and compliance and you know looking at the, just as a discipline, we talk about the lack of standardization, talk about how this isn't fully a mainstream uh, discipline yet, um, though certainly people are incorporating different kinds of alternative data sets are still kind of working on their strategies. From you, from what you've seen, where do firms most often go wrong um, when incorporating alternative data sets? Because, you know, we've heard a lot of frustration from buy side firms saying, you know, one to 10% of these uh, data sets actually yield value. And there's kind of this frustration over ROI and stuff like that. Where do you kind of see firms when you see it done poorly, where do they often uh, go astray? Uh, yeah, I think it's, I, I think sometimes coming in, people are, you know, they kind of like what I was mentioning, they kind of come in, they, 
they've heard about alternative data. It sounds interesting. So let me kind of look at some of these alternative data sets and, and make go to a conference or might start looking around at what's available or some of these data catalogs. And there's you know, hundreds of these data sets. And uh, you know, how do you start prioritizing? So why don't I go with the, you know, some of the more established ones to start off and, and you know, start testing it and all of a sudden, you know, I think it's just much more difficult than they expect it to be. Mm-hmm. And, and as I mentioned, yeah, it's a very competitive, even like these, if, if they're, you know, they're going to have to come up with a novel approach to the data set and, and use it in a different way. And if they're not fully committed to it and not fully committed to, you know, looking at a lot of data sets and, and thinking of how to combine them, looking at, um, you know, kind of trying to complete the full picture. If it's really just kind of, I'm going to look at one or two or test them in isolation, it's going to be a very frustrating experience. And I think, um, yeah, like if you get into that, like where you're not, you're not seeing the immediate results, you're just going to throw your hands up pretty quickly. I think, I think you need to commit to it and put the resources behind it and have the patience because um, it's going to take it's it's you're going to have to look at a a lot of data sets to kind of get get your um, differentiation. Okay. And you know one of the things that you also hit on in the paper is this idea around privacy um, when looking at alternative data. Obviously, you know there's been a lot of issues that have arisen over the years around geolocation data and how that information is captured and sold. Um, there's consumer data, and then there's also just internal data. So kind of that exhaust of, um, you know, kind of the stuff that banks and asset managers are pulling in from their clients. How can they use that? Can they monetize that? There, there's a lot of issues around the privacy and security, uh, around privacy and just kind of ethics around some of the alternative data space. Where do you see the industry moving um, over the next couple of years? Is this something that you think that regulators are going to take a deeper look at and thus firms are going to have to start thinking about now or you know is it something that everybody's still trying to find their footing so until that happens there's not really a lot that can be done yeah i think it's more and more you know whether it's through regulation or through other means there's it's just going to become more and more of an issue and you know the issues around privacy uh, kind of remain like a lot of these data sets, you know, starting out uh, around geolocation, they have personal identifiable information. And, and I think, you know, it's well known that no one wants to touch that and no one wants to receive data that has PII in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's, you know, there, you know, there's, th- these are kind of, you know, companies are getting this data and then sending it out and they say they have the rights to it and you really have to do a ton of due diligence to make sure that they, they are collecting it the right way, that they do have the rights to the data, that they are de-identifying it and it's not able to be re-identified later. And I just think more and more companies that are not, you know, data buyers are not going to want to deal with companies that are not taking that very seriously and are not doing it really well. And that kind of comes up where you sit on geolocation. It, 
you know, it got, the case that the the space got very crowded. It, like a lot, there's a, quite a few alternative data providers in geolocation, and you could tell it was not supportable. Um, and I don't think all of them, you know, I think some of those were were kind of doing it, like you said, like um, let's just figure it out and see what the market is before we go back and clean up and make sure we're doing everything, you know, dotting every I and crossing every T type thing. Mm -hmm. So. I just think those are, I, I think those, this is another thing where it's going to be another cost on these type of providers to make sure this is being done um, professionally and according to the law. And, and I think that will further thin out the market and, and really kind of separate who's, who's really committed to the space and, and, and wants to make sure they're, um, prof, you know, running a professional data collection and um, data product. That makes sense. And you know, maybe to that point, um, you know, what we've seen over the last few years, there's been a lot of uh, M&A activity um, and investment activity in the alternative data space. Um, you guys obviously acquired uh, Battlefin. Uh, there was NASDAQ Quandle uh, just uh, this week. Morningstar acquired ESG Specialist Sustainalytics. Right. Um, and this is obviously going to there are there are so many data providers out there right now who are and quite frankly they're going to struggle in this environment just because as private equity vc funding kind of pulls back a little bit in these uncertain times that's going to make their lives a little bit more difficult as firms are not willing to experiment more with new data sets um so there's likely to be even more m a activity is that how you see it you know kind of going forward do you see there kind of be see us kind of going through a period of further consolidation around alternative data or is it more a matter of because this information is being used so much more to try and gain insights based off of the coronavirus and this is kind of being used as a proving ground this will actually be an area that will see an expansion of more data providers try and enter the space to fill gaps right great question yeah i, I mean it's like the best and worst thing that happened to the alternative data market was this COVID-19 epidemic. It's um, it's really kind of, you know, I think some of them were struggling to kind of show their value. The market was trending upwards and wasn't a lot of volatility. And, and now this has all changed and the world is very different now. And I think it's, it's really, they've been kind of able to highlight some of the applicability of their data. And that's been a great thing, but right, everything is, all that all that you're pointing out is now for a lot of them the revenues have not come yet and so if you either need if you've either need like a high growth in revenue or funding over the next six to 18 months you know you could be in a lot of trouble right now and mm -hmm. um, i mean from our perspective i guess at infinitive you know we're um we're kind of at the point we're Kind of continuing as planned. I know another world has changed, but um, we have kind of how we're approaching things, and we're 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 looking at acquisitions, and we would we're always kind of doing that, and we're going to look to ones that can drive growth or a good fit. Um, I don't think we're going to go to, you know, I think there are going to be some distressed sales, and I think we would look at them, but I don't see us really changing our course too much over. Um, over kind of some churn that might happen in the alternative data market, okay. but but we'll see. But I think um, 
I think what's interesting is to me what I'm not sure yet. Let's see how it plays out. Is like I think the alternative data space is is interesting in the sense of there's you know, every market has like kind of a high end premium solution and um, the more the middle and then low end and some of these alternative data providers were say on the low end you know probably were you know not all of them were going to make it anyway mm-hmm. and maybe this COVID-19 might accelerate them leaving the space sure. um, so you know you see some of that but then I think what's interesting is kind of the high end as well like there's you were mentioning like there's the company exhaust data like companies um, there are very successful companies that are producing data that has applicability to to uh, financial services as an alternative data set and it's could be really valuable yeah. and it's and they they might have either put their toe in the water or they were thinking about selling it as a data set or they were just starting out and you know, compared to their primary business, it's it's a small amount of revenue, but it's still a really interesting data set and, you know, with a lot of potential. And I, I wonder about those. Are they just going to kind of say, like, you know, the revenues aren't going to be coming over the next six to 18 months with this? Why don't we just why don't we just pull this and focus on our primary business and not, you know, not try to do this side hustle of selling, you know, selling it to financial services. And so I think that's kind of Kind of a shame or interesting to see if that plays out of, of, of kind of the different types of alternative data providers that are going to be impacted here. Yeah. No, it, it, it really is just so much uncertainty and it's just trying to figure out what are some of those longer tail trends right. that, you know, are going to just be coming down the road. It, it's still it's it's still so early days, but uh, it's definitely going to be an interesting time. Um, I guess maybe to, to kind of wrap things up for you guys at Refandive, what, you know, obviously plans are changing you know there are adjustments that have to be made um, in this environment but where are you guys still going to be focusing your when it comes to alternative data where are you still going to be focusing your attention as far as kind of your development roadmap and trying to expand um, your product and user base yeah so yeah as you said I give caveat everything but for now we're kind of continuing to stick with what our you know our plan path and you know as you mentioned we did a um, we did a partnership with Battlefin last year, and so our, uh, we're continuing to kind of build out that partnership, and that includes, um, you know, we, we provided some of our data into their platform last year, and now we're just starting to onboard some of their content into our platform. So you'll start to see the first alternative data sets going into what we call our QA cloud platform, and that's um, focused on our quant uh, quant community mm-hmm. and we're just going to co- continue from there of adding content sets um, make it you know, down the line available on our desktop offering and and yeah and, and just be I guess be on the lookout of, of opportunities that arise but um, um, we you know as I mentioned we we look at our, our in-house data and what we could potentially bring to market and then externally yeah look um, continue and enhance the battlefield relationship and and start to bring some of those data sets to market. Okay. And well, John, thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, again, um, they produce a, a research report around the alternative data space uh, titled A New Dimension of Data. If you want to go look it up yourselves, otherwise we will link to it um, for the article. But uh, John, thanks uh, so much for joining us today. All right. Thank you very much, Tony. Have a good day.